Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Howard, and welcome to the Pure Animal Podcast. On today's episode, we're talking to Dr. Nadine Hamilton about Love Your Pet, Love Your Vet, a very special discussion as part of our two-part series. Dr. Nadine Hamilton is a psychologist who has completed doctoral research into veterinarian well-being in 2016. She is the founder of Love Your Pet, Love Your Vet, an organisation that aims to raise awareness about the mental health issues within the veterinary industry. Nadine has written a best-selling book called Coping with Stress and Burnout as a Veterinarian and has been instrumental in leading a paradigm shift within the industry. Nadine is also passionate about interior design and feng shui and has qualifications in angel therapy, spiritual intuitive healing and animal reiki. Good morning, Nadine. Thank you so much for taking a couple of hours out of your day today to talk to us on the Pure Animal Podcast. I'm super excited to have you. Thank you. It's so lovely to be here and uh, be able to have a chat this morning. Yeah, I'm, I've been looking forward to this since we booked it in probably a couple of months ago now, if it's that long. Uh, you're a different sort of guest than we normally have on the podcast. Traditionally, we've uh, interviewed practitioners who are working in different element, um, sort of areas in the field of integrative veterinary medicine, but you are a psychologist who specialises in veterinary, veterinarian well-being and mental health and just such an important topic, um, you know, across the world with with every industry and every profession and every person at the moment, but particularly so in the veterinary industry, given the huge uplift in pet ownership since the COVID pandemic yes. and the not matched uptake in graduating vets to actually be able to handle the workload. So um, we are going to talk about veterinary mental health or vet, the veterinary industry's mental health and well-being and also love your pet love your vet which is your um your baby <laughs> and <laughs> um and yeah and I, I just would love to hear all about the research that you've done in the area and any insights that you have would be amazing but before we get into the you know the nitty-gritty I'd love to hear about mm-hmm a bit about your background and how you came into this area in psychology, but also what motivated you originally to study psychology at uni? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think going back as far as I can remember, I always had a love of animals and certainly my very first school report card uh, back in the day where your parents had to write a comment on this. So that's how <laughs> old I am. <laughs> and it goes right back there. Um, you know, it was one of the comments that my mum wrote on there, you know, Nadine, you know, has a love of animals. And, um, you know, when I was born, we had a rough collie called Shane. So, you know, <laughs> looked identical to Lassie. Um, and I do credit him with my love of animals, you know, because yeah. I, I can still vividly remember him even though we left the UK when I was five um but I still remember him and just you know absolutely everything about him um you know patting him snuggling with him he was like our protector you know no one would be able to get into our room while he was there um so I I guess that kind of started the journey um but I loved horses um they were probably like one of the things I was most passionate about um and then, obviously, as the years progressed, I was far too busy talking 
at school and not listening and paying attention to be worrying about doing my schoolwork and concentrating. <laughs> so, um, and I actually, there were my school reports as well, that I was too busy talking and uh, time to buckle down and stop talking, start paying attention. Uh, but I think now, like in all seriousness, I probably had a little bit of ADD going on that I just found it really hard to concentrate, to concentrate and yeah. absorb the information yeah. in that lecture style. Like yeah. I'm a a reader, you know, and kinesthetic learner. So that whole style just, just didn't, didn't work you. for me. Yeah, exactly. And so I failed high school. Um, I failed every one of my, um, well, it was fifth form. I was schooled in New Zealand. Uh, so equivalent of year 10, I guess, here in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, but my um, school certificate exams failed every single one of them. And my parents gave me an ultimatum, either find a job or you have to repeat your fifth form. And there was no way I wanted to go through that. So I went and got myself my first job and I was actually on the bus um, traveling into Auckland City where we lived in Auckland. And I remember going past one of the universities and thinking, well, I'll never go to university because, you know, I'm not smart enough. I failed high school. You know, back in the day, you had to have your, all those school qualifications to be able to get into university. Um, you know, fortunately now we have mature age students, <laughs> you know, and admission that way. Um, but I always just was drawn to the self-help, helping people. Yeah. That was something I always loved. And I never had a name for it until I was reading a book one day written by a psychologist who explained what she did. And I was like, ah, psychology is what it is that I want to do. Oh, that's wonderful. So, um, yeah, I signed up for university back in 1996 and I was at my first residential school and probably a month prior to that, um, we had the obviously very tragic news that I don't think any anyone wants to hear, but one of my cousins had taken his own life, um, mm. Andrew, who was back in the UK. And that was, I guess, one of the most pivotal moments for me to decide that I wanted to work in suicide prevention. Yeah, right. And I had the conversation with university professor and I said, right, what are all the subjects I need to do because this is the area I want to work in? And he said, Nadine, you've probably changed your mind 20 times before you graduate. And he did. I ended up um, really focusing on organisational psychology, like the training, the development, that side of things. Oh, interesting. But I... I always just had this calling. I knew something was missing. And so fast forward a lot of years, um, you know, got through my university degree and all my studies and I was at our local vet and there was a locum there. Um, it's the only day I've ever seen her, um, never seen her since. I didn't even know who she was until about a year ago. I finally found out who she was um, and touched base with her. But she commented to me about, you know, what job do you do? Which is pretty rare. I mean, I think, you know, anyone who, who works in a vet clinic knows you don't usually have time for no. asking your clients you know oh what do you do for a job it's usually like get in find out yep. what's going on then get out yeah um, so amazing conversation and she said oh so you'll be aware of the high rate of suicide and veterinarians and I said no I absolutely was not aware of that and it shocked me because mm. I wanted to be a vet myself but you know, way too queasy, too much talking <laughs> in high school um, and didn't <laughs> think it was going to happen and um and so that was sort of all the mo- the motivation I needed to say, we've got to do something about it. Yeah. So then I sort of found my purpose, I guess, with the suicide prevention, helping people, bringing my love of animals together. Yeah. So it was like it sort of went 
full circle for me because it was like, right, I couldn't be a vet myself. Um, you know, I don't know if I could physically do the job and the study and um, and all of that, like from the technical aspects of it, which it's not just all puppies and kittens, as you know. Um, <laughs> but this is my way. I sort of feel like I'm giving back to the animals by helping the people who can yeah. care for the animals. So it really was a, a nice thing and obviously still honouring Andrew, my cousin, with the suicide prevention. because yeah. So he was a vet, um, you know, was he? No, he wasn't a vet, um, but that was just my way of bringing it together yes, and going, how can I feel yeah. like I am doing something and contributing to one of the areas where it's needed yeah. the most. Like I know in mental health it's needed everywhere, but, you know, for the veterinary profession with the disproportionate rate of suicide, yeah. that was where I sort of found that. And it's sort of where Love Your Pet came about um, after finishing my doctoral research, which is what I ended up doing to study it at a doctoral level and find out, okay, why? Why is there such a high rate of suicide? What's going on? What can we do about it? Um I had a conversation with someone who said, you need to create a paradigm shift. Mm. And I said, okay. So I um, spoke with a marketing and business coach of mine who's based in the US. And I said, Sue, I have to create a paradigm shift. What do I do? <laughs> and she said, ah, oh, it's like we need a campaign. I don't know. Something like love your pet, love your vet. Uh, oh, she just said it. All. Wow. Yeah, she came out with it. So I can't lay claim to the name. Um, that was Sue's amazing creation and that's why she's, you know, creative and in the marketing side of yeah, things. Yeah, it's a great um, name. Oh, I know. And it was sort of like that is so fitting. And that was sort of where it all began. You know, we partnered with Royal Cannon, had our first campaign. Um, we're literally in the midst of filming our second campaign. So super, super excited yeah, about really that. Yeah, that was a very long-winded answer to your oh, question, no, really, wasn't it? <laughs> I've got, I've actually got so many more questions. So, so what year was Love Your Pet, Love Your Vet actually founded? Um, I started it in 2017. Okay, yep. Um, it was, we launched our first campaign in 2018 mm -hmm. and I registered it as a charity um, late 2018. Okay, right. And back into the time when you were doing your research. Yes. So you were looking at why it is that the suicide rate is so much higher in the veterinary profession. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about what you found out doing that research? Yes, for sure. Um, when I first started, pretty much all of the literature was suggesting it was because you have to perform euthanasia. Mm. Um, and so my doctoral research actually started out as the phenomenology of pet euthanasia. In other words, what is it about euthanizing pets that is causing so much distress? Mm. But as my own research progressed and I interviewed um, vets of all different ages, you know, different locations around Australia and different areas of specialisation, it soon became apparent that certainly euthanasia was an issue, um, not for all of them, but I would say for the majority of um, the vets that were part of my research. Um but there were other factors as well that were there. So we knew that, yeah, performing euthanasia definitely was a factor, um, especially if it was a convenience yeah. euthanasia. Yeah. You know, like if someone couldn't um, find a kennel to put their dog in while yeah. they went on holiday, so they yeah. had it put to sleep. Yeah. Um, you know, those sorts of things, which obviously are distressing. And my understanding is that doesn't happen as much anymore. I I like to think that that's um, that's the reality. I know that there are a number of vets who refuse to do it um, for that reason, but yeah. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. But 
hopefully the um, incidence of it has has reduced. Um, dealing with difficult clients, and this this had many aspects of it. Um, it can range from the clients who just rude and obnoxious um, or that would come in they would be abusive threatening emotional blackmail um, you know snide remarks about the cost of treatment mm-hmm. and you know all those sorts of things that I think most people in the profession would have come across yep. uh, but also those who may be non-compliant with treatment mm-hmm. um, you know so they might come in be prescribed something a week later the animals know better but then they blame the vet for not doing their job properly when the client actually hasn't followed the treatment protocol. So, you know, you've got those sorts of things as well. Um, And and that could be for many reasons. Unrealistic expectations, Mm -hmm. um, not only those that other people place on um, the vet profession, uh, such as I've got a 15-minute consultation booked, I've got no idea what's wrong with my pet, so I expect for you to diagnose it, cure it, um, you know, all in those 15 minutes, and by the way, I really shouldn't have to pay for this. Yeah, under $100. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. I can only afford to pay you this today, if anything. Um, so it's those kind of unrealistic expectations, you know, that they put on. Or also, you know, the other aspect, you know, I know we do have a lot of different TV shows out there which can be great for showing what sort of goes on in a clinic, but sometimes they are just showing the happy side. And they're not always showing the realities of what's going on, you know, so there's always a happy ending. So I think that there can be this false perception that vets are miracle workers, and I know they do amazing, amazing work, but not every animal is going to be able to be saved. But, you know, because of some of the things that we're seeing on TV and those sorts of things, I think that it's that perception. Exactly. Yeah. and then there's the other side of the unrealistic expectations as well, which are the ones that the vet place amongst themselves. Yeah. You know, typically, and I say this with the utmost respect, that, you know, vets do tend to be high achievers mm-hmm. and do tend to have perfectionistic tendencies. And so there is this expectation that everything has to be done to this particular standard, but it may not be realistic to be performing at this standard all the time mm-hmm. or there's shame or guilt and having to ask for help or, you know, just, again, a lot of that comes into the mindset and everything as well. But, um, you know, the pressures that are put on vets, you know, typically it was only the smartest of the smart that got into vet school mm-hmm. um, because it was so competitive then it's drummed in, right, you have to do this, you've got to do this, you've got to do this. And, yeah. you know, I have a number of vets that I would consider my friends as well who have said we, we're not set up for failure. We don't know what it's like to fail. Yeah. Um, you know, and so I think that then starts to come into it as well. It's sort of that whole perception around that. Yeah, um, absolutely. There's also um, the compassion fatigue, yeah. which is very rife in the helping and healing professions. I do have a theory that for those working in the vet profession, there's a double whammy. You know, typically compassion fatigue is that fatigue that comes from being so compassionate and caring, um, you know, and giving your all. You know, I would say the majority of vets that I know, they give everything to the job, you know, and again, this would extend to the nurses as well. Um, You know, just giving absolutely everything and, that comes at a toll. You know, you're being so compassionate towards the owner or the carer of that animal as well as the compassion towards the animal Mm. itself, 
Whereas yeah. those of us, you know, in the human healing professions, we're just dealing with human one. to human. Yeah. 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 So, you know, those of you in the vet profession, you get a double whammy. Yeah, that's um, right. And then the last one was the financial issues. Yeah. And that can range from, you know, having those discussions with clients about the cost of treatment, um, the clients who can't afford it, which may result in euthanasia, yeah. um, which again could be stressful knowing, well, I could actually, you know, do something to help this animal, but they can't afford it. So my hands are tied, yeah. that sort of thing. Um, but there's a flip side to that as well. And that's the customers who do have the money and expect that money can pay for anything. Um, So the animal may be at end of life or, uh, you know, politically correct terminology, I guess, is, you know, their symptoms or their condition is not compatible with life. And having the expectation that I don't care what it costs, just fix my animal. That's not realistic. Um, And then the financial aspects um, as well from those who own the practice. It's still a business. There's still overheads like most yeah, other businesses. KPIs and, and things in some clinics. Definitely, yeah. definitely. And the profit margins for vet clinic, I mean, it may have changed um, last year through COVID with just everything overwhelmingly busy, um, you know, but pre-COVID, it was less than 10% profit, you oh, know, really? on average, wow, you know, just know here in Australia, it was yeah. really low profit yeah. margins. So, you know, and the, the vets and the nurses, they're not, as well paid as I think people think. Um, Definitely you know, because, not. <laughs> no. Yeah. So you can probably relate to that. Yep. Um, you know, it's it's really astounding and I think it's just so much scope for education and awareness. This is so interesting to me and a little bit about my background. I did work in practice for five years in a range of different clinics and I did leave practice primarily due to deteriorating mental health. Uh, to be completely honest. Aspects that I'm interested, um, whether your research uncovered as well, and maybe they weren't sort of the top five uh, reasons behind, you know, burnout and poor mental health and and sadly suicide, but Mm -hmm. the working hours that vets do and the thing that really I found the most difficult was the unpredictability of the day and being at the absolute mercy of the phone or the door opening and not ever knowing what was around the corner and having completely actually no control over your day when you finished, if you had a break. I, being yeah, being a Taipei control freak, I mm-hmm. that was the number one thing that just sort of sent me into a ball of anxiety every single day. Did you find that in Absolutely. your research that that popped up ever? Working hours, absolutely. Um, You know, and I think this is where a lot of that education comes in um, because I don't think people realise, as you said, you're at the mercy of the phone or the walk-ins that are going to come in. You might have your day planned. It's like, right, I've got consults, you know, for this many hours in the morning, then we might be doing our surgeries, Mm -hmm. then we're um, doing consults in the afternoon. But you don't know what's going to walk through the door. Like I personally think working in a vet clinic is like working in an emergency centre of a hospital. Yeah, it is. You just never know. And so when you're, you've are you got that heightened sense of arousal, you've got the the stress hormones are kicking in because you're dealing there with that fight flight, like, mm-hmm. oh, my gosh, I've got to be prepared for this. So mm-hmm. your cortisol levels goes through the roof. The yeah. adrenaline is pumping and long-term, that's really it's not good. You know, we're not designed to be in that state yeah. for that amount of time. Yep. So you've got this high level of stress and then the pressure 
of, okay, well, I don't even know if I'm going to be able to complete this job because I might have to cut that short because an emergency is going to come in. Um, You know, so even though you might have your day planned out, as you said, you're at the mercy to all of these unknown and unpredictable things. You never know what's walking through the door. And, you know, like we've even been in that situation personally, um, you know, quite a few years ago when we had adopted another dog. Um, and they got into a massive, massive fight um, oh. over who was going to be the alpha female. I mean, we've got like a lab, these are both Labradors, yeah, um, okay. you know, and our yeah. Jenna was a therapy dog. She is like the most affectionate, yeah. low energy dog you could imagine. Um, you know, but the other dog, 12 months it took her to try and dominate. And one day it just erupted and they got into a fight and it was like right on lunchtime. And I knew the clinic, they'd be, you know, trying to have a lunch break, probably doing surgeries. But I'm like, what do I do? And I just rang and I said, you know, the dogs had a fight, you know, Janet's ear was dripping blood and, you know, the other um, dog, Marley, had, you know, a little bit of a, you know, some cuts on her face and they just said, just bring her straight in. And they had like two teams working on them I mean it wasn't catastrophic um you know but they they both needed treatment as well and I just remember like apologizing for I'm so sorry we've interrupted your lunch break because I wish all clients were like I know but that's what I I think most people don't understand it's like oh you're open you're ready this is what you're you're there to do which yes but what about the cost and the toll that this is putting on the staff because what was going through my mind is I've probably just interrupted the lunch break that you were looking forward to and now you may not even get a lunch break. Yeah, Um, and that's, you know, that has its own knock-on effects. If you don't actually have time to stop, let alone eat, that can destroy your afternoon if you've got, you know, low blood sugar and your hormones are rising. And, I mean, that that can contribute hugely to poor mental health. Yeah. You know, and legally we're meant to have a break after, I think it's like four or five yeah, hours, four hours, you know, I think. Yeah. working. And so that doesn't always happen, mm. um, you know, and it might just be, you know, grabbing something here, grabbing something there. But what generally tends to happen is the staff, you're reaching for the sugary or caffeinated mm-hmm. snacks yep. because you want that instant boost, which gives your blood sugar a boost. Then it generally then comes it crashing down. Yep. And so you're having all this unhealthy eating. And we know, you know, like from new research around like the gut brain, mm-hmm. all this nutritional psychiatry that I absolutely love, yeah, which is all around the gut. You know, if your gut's not healthy, you don't have a healthy mind, you know, yeah. so gut health is good mental health. Yeah. And so it just has these big catastrophic flow-on effects, effects that we might yeah. think, oh, you know, it's just a bad day, then it's a bad week, then it's a bad month, you know, and then it just goes on and it's like we can't sustain that yeah, long term. I know, I know. You know it's, it's, it's impossible to sustain. And there's just, oh, absolutely. there's just too many people that I hear of and that I've personally known to you know, completely burn out and leave the profession or, you know, or worse. And it's, yes. what are we going to do about it, Nadine? What's... Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I think, um, you know, I, I, I do hear, you know, like of suicides and this is a global issue. It's not just 
restricted to Australia, um, that there sadly are suicides. I think this year alone I've heard of um, three or four just vet nurse suicides. Mm. So even though we've got all the research around veterinarian suicide and we know the statistics and the contributing factors, we don't have research. Um, I think there's been two studies that I've ever found that have gone into it that were quite a long time ago. Um, but there's nothing really that I've ever been able to find anyway um, on vet nurse suicide. Mm. Um, but certainly, like I know firsthand because I'm hearing about them, that they're happening. Also, like our wildlife carers and wildlife rescuers, oh, they're really? susceptible to a yeah. lot of these things as well. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, when I hear of a suicide, you know, I think, oh, my gosh, have we failed yeah. this person? Um, but then there's that other part of me that thinks, you know, we do have so much mental health support and awareness around at the moment. But it's getting to the individuals and reducing that stigma in seeking help. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, there's still a lot of stigma around mental health and seeking support, you know, because what does that say about me if I can't cope and I have to get help? I um, mean, you know, it's just that whole mentality that I think a lot of us can probably relate yeah. to, that yeah. um, particularly with our mental health that I sort of think, well, there is a lot of support there, but we need to make it okay for people to feel comfortable to, to reach out and get that support. Yeah. Um, certainly over the last few years, I have seen, you know, a big shift in that. I have seen more people, um, you know, I do work one-on-one -on -one with vets and nurses as well from a psychology or mm -hmm. counselling perspective. Um, and so I have seen more people reaching out, which is absolutely awesome. Yeah. Um, so that is very encouraging. The attrition rate, I know um, the Lincoln Institute did some research, um, I think it was the end of 2018, um, on the attrition rate of vets across Australia and New Zealand. And it was something, again, don't quote me exactly, I'm pretty sure it was around 38% attrition rate. Um, which is pretty high. That's high. Um, so yeah. that's, yeah, that was just within VET, again, just across the two countries. Um, the re there is actually a, a research going out now, a sustainability study um, that they've replicated That's we're hoping to get global response to that to sort of get a bigger picture of what's actually going on, where are those rates. And I think certainly I would rather the vets leave the profession than choose to end their life. Oh, yeah. But we want to we, – we don't want it to even – that to even have to come into it. You know, anyone deserves to enjoy their job without the abuse and all of the, you know, the horrific things that go in it. And, yes, there are always going to be stressful components to working in the vet profession. But when I look at, back at my research and think, you know, when I'm talking to vets, when I'm working with vets – the difficult clients and the financial issues would probably be the top two that I see, you know, and they're things that we can do something about. Yeah. Um, you know, performing euthanasia, unfortunately, that is part and parcel of the job. We can't change that, but we can help people cope with it. But, yeah. you know, there are all these other things that we can do, which is what we're trying to do with the education and make people aware that their behaviour could cost someone a life ultimately. Yeah, so you know, it's, is that what you're offering with Love Your Pet, Love Your Vet? Is it trying to educate the general public? 
So. Yes, it's yep. um, threefold. Um, okay. One is reducing the stigma in veterinary and we sort of broaden it to like animal workers because obviously we want to make sure the wildlife, um, you know, and like zoo workers and other workers that don't just work in a vet clinic or hospital um, are supported. Um, so we, we're trying to reduce the stigma, you know, in reaching out and getting support. Um, raising awareness in the community about the realities of working in this profession, not just the perceptions, you know, which, oh, it must be great. You just work with cats and dogs all day yeah, and puppies and kittens and you get all the yeah. cuddles. And it's great. All you do is vaccinate them and they might do a dental check and that's it or maybe desex them. Um, it's like, yeah, that's that's sort of what you see on the front yeah. line. It's the behind the scenes stuff that stuff that people don't see or don't necessarily understand, um, you know, the big picture. Um, um, And also providing psychological and educational support uh, to the veterinary and animal-related workers as well. So, you know, we do a lot of webinars Pre-COVID, um, we were getting out, well, we, I say me, uh, we um, was going around or were going around trying to get around Australia as best we could, delivering um, free workshops to those within the profession, you know, some of the essential coping skills and coping strategies. Um, we've done, um, we have a conference. Last year it was postponed, um, but we finally got to hold it in March this year, which is a wellbeing conference just for veterinary professionals. Oh, wonderful. Uh, so that's something um, that we're, we're going to be running every March, which was awesome. Um, so it's really just, yeah, educating. And I think the biggest thing is that education and awareness. Certainly there's even people in the profession that aren't aware of the the high stats, particularly those um, that I've seen it or where I've seen it is some of the new students getting in to study uh, vet science that had no idea that this is what was happening. So if we can educate and get into people early and say there is support, you know, you just like reach out, we'll point you in the right direction um, so that you don't feel that you're alone, Um, you know, and just so that this is a community that, is lots of support out there. It's just making sure that people know where to find it and that it's accessible. Yeah, absolutely. I remember when I was in first year at at Sydney Uni Mm -hmm. and we had a six-week-long course run by a vet who then um, went and worked in the counselling profession and it was about preventing burnout and, um, you know, looking after your mental health. And I loved Mm -hmm. it because I just love this area anyway and it's a natural interest of mine. But I just wasn't sure whether delivering something like that to first-year students was going to make an impact to them when they graduated. What are your thoughts on educating vet students? Do you think that it's better off waiting until they're in final year uh, just before they're graduating so they're sort of fresh of mind and they, you know, know what they're going into and they have some tools in place to be able to protect their mental well-being or do you think that it's something that should be taught throughout the whole curriculum? I'm interested yes. in your thoughts. Um, I think throughout the whole curriculum because there are so many different aspects to what's going on. You know, when we look at, again, just those five core things that came out of my research, you know, how do we teach these students to deal with difficult customers? Yeah. How do we teach them, you know, essential communication and assertiveness skills? How do we teach them stress management skills? Um, you know, how to manage your time and try and be as organised as you can so that you're not still doing your case notes at midnight and, um, 
the how to cope financially, whether it's, you know, having financial advice or having, again, those conversations with customers, like valuing yourself, having boundaries, um, you know, teaching you how to cope with, you know, the compassion fatigue and, you know, general coping and well-being skills as well, that that would be, you know, my my ideal scenario because I agree um, what you said there, Sarah, like in learning it in first year, but, and I've, I've had this conversation um, with one of the lecturers at one of the universities here, uh, who said, but it was probably too soon yeah, that, you know, you think, soon. oh, I've got another, you know, four years after yeah. this yet, you know, at least. How, you know, I don't need to know about that yet. That's not important. And by the time you graduate, you've pretty you've much forgotten, forgotten it. it. And yeah. then you're thrown into the deep end. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, we, we weren't prepared for this. Um, because I look at, you know, the research and what came out of, you know, specifically my own research. And the contributing factors, none of them were clinical skills. None of them were to do with I didn't feel like we researched, um, you know, the history of mosquitoes enough. I didn't (laughs) feel like I wasn't, you know, equipped in anesthesia enough. These were all mental health issues, Um, you know, and the fact that we're talking such a high rate of suicide, that's a mental health problem, you know. And so my belief is we need the mental health solutions to fix the mental health problems. So, you know, that's why I just think ideally I would love to see it as a continuum. So it's reinforced throughout the curriculum. So by the time you get to fifth year, you feel like you're well-equipped to be able to deal with the demands of what you're potentially going to face. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with you. 100%. 100%. Let's make it happen. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We're getting there slowly, yeah. but there's a long way to go. Yeah, no, 100%. But I do, like you said, you've noticed in the last few years, I do feel like this movement is gathering momentum, which is yes. so exciting and so important, but there's still a lot of scope and a long way to go, obviously. And, you know, it'll always yeah. be, they'll never, we'll never reach a destination uh, yes. it'll always be a, a work in progress. Definitely, because we're continually evolving and there's new research coming to light, you know, different generations mm. as well, you know, that are going through the profession, you know, and each of those have different philosophies and yeah. ways that they cope, um, you know, with what's going on as well. So, yeah. you know, I guess some of the older vets go, oh, look, I'm just so used to it by now, it doesn't bother me anymore. Um, but then there's some that are going, I'm just so burnt out, I can't do this anymore. Just, yeah, so it's a, it's a real, yeah, mixed bag of yeah. what's going out there. Yeah. So as I said, long way to go, but we're definitely seeing some progress. Right and I direction. think a lot of that has been driven by the profession who are speaking up and yeah. saying, you know, we've had enough. Yeah. And, you know, I'd like to think that we've helped to give the profession a voice in speaking up and being able to do that and knowing that, you know, we've got your back. That's, you know, one of the big things I think has been for the profession to trust that there is, you know, someone or whether it's an organisation or association there that gets it and is advocating and doing something about it, yeah, um, you know, and that's that's a big thing for me. Yeah. Oh, it must be so rewarding. Yeah. I know it's a really hard work that you're doing, but it's rewarding as well. It is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> challenging. But- <laughs> I know, it must be. Um, Nadine, so you mentioned earlier that the two sort of most common 
let's say, factors that might contribute to poor mental well-being in vets are, um, say, your your sort of misbehaving client and mm-hmm. the, was it the financial aspects? Financial. Yeah. Yes. And so what can pet parents, because we do have pet parents listening to this podcast as well, I'm sure yes. that they would love to know, you know, what can they start doing even today to support their vet's mental well-being when they next go and see them? I, I think the biggest thing that is totally free and it is totally easy to do is I be kind and say mm. thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, those, those snide remarks that you might think it's been really funny, but that could have been the 30th time that they've heard that today yeah. and it starts to wear thin. Um, you know, the the comments, are oh, you just in, the, in it for the money, it's too expensive. In comparison to what? Mm. You know, we, we can't compare vet medicine with our human medicine, which is no subsidised <laughs> here in Australia yeah, yeah. by Medicare. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's like but we're not comparing apples with apples here. We're dealing with two different things. You know, we don't get subsidies from the government um, you know, for other services such as, you know, and I mean no disrespect, but, you know, if we're going to the hairdresser, I don't get a Medicare rebate for that. Mm. If I take my car to the mechanic, I don't get a Medicare rebate for yeah, that. If I go right. to my accountant, I don't get a rebate. Yeah. I don't get a rebate on my grocery. You yeah. know, all of those sorts of things. It's like, but So why are we so hard on the vet profession? Like, yes, I know the treatment can seem expensive, but that's because we're paying of the cost. Mm. You know, obviously if we have pet insurance and we're getting our rebates that way, that's a different story. But, you know, we're still having to pay for a service that doesn't have any government subsidy, even from the pharmaceutical perspective. Um, You know, I know there are vets out there that have been abused by clients to say, well, I can get this drug for my dog um, from you and it's going to cost me, you know, X amount of dollars. But if I go to the chemist and get it for myself, it's only going to cost me ten dollars mm-hmm. um, because it's subsidised through the PBS if we buy human medicine, but not, you know, through the vet side of things, which isn't the vet's fault. You know, yeah. so it's not fair to no. abuse the vet. It's not yeah. their fault that this is happening. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it's that real understanding that this is a service. It is a life-saving service. You know, for our pets potentially, that it costs money. You know, we. Do we go out there and abuse the other people we have to deal with, you know, that we work in in service-based industries because they're charging for their services, Mm. you know? Well, potentially some people do. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. But, you know, we tend not to question it, you know. And as I said, and I'm not picking on hairdressers or mechanics or, you know, accountants. I'm just saying, you know, they're just other services that I use as well as my vet services that charge a fee for service. So it, it shouldn't be any different you know the way I see it is you know I look at what vets are doing for my pets you know they've absolutely saved my pet's life you know particularly my my poor sick um, Burmese a couple of years ago Um, you know they they saved his life you know as I said when our our dogs got into a fight um, you know they were at the vets and you know they've been to AES the um, after hours clinic that that's life-saving work but because we don't have to pay generally, and you know, if we're using public health through Medicare, we're not paying for this. So there's mm-hmm. this perception that our healthcare is free. Yeah. It's like, well, it's, it's not. The government are paying for it. Extremely um, expensive. You know, like if you exactly. know what things cost. I, I know, you yes. know, friends who have had um, babies in a private, you know, the private system, yes. they get the bill. It's unbelievable. Yes. 
how much things yes. cost. Thousands and thousands Absol- and way more than Absolutely. Fees. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I I think, um, you know, disclosure here, you know, I had an emergency caesarean with my first child um, that was in a private hospital that I'm sure the bill was around $10,000. Yeah. I mean, that was over 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, would it cost me $20,000 if my dog had to have a caesarean? No. Probably <laughs> unlikely not. No. Um, you know, and I think the other thing, and we actually have it on one of our Love Your Pet posters, is the specialisation of vets. Um, and I think we've got it to 36 professions, you know, in the human medical world rolled into one that a vet has to be yes. for pets. Yeah. And the, for I've multiple breeds and species. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Yeah. You know, and it's just eye opening. It's like people don't realise that you're a dentist and oncologist and, and a psychiatrist. Yep. <laughs> you know, pathologist. You know, you're doing all of that. I know that not every vet is going to specialise in those areas, but you have to understand what's going on, you know, mm-hmm. at the very basic mm-hmm. level as a minimum to go, right, well, we need to do pathology here. What are we looking for? I need to understand the lab results, um, you know, and then referring on. And obviously you do have your specialists, thank goodness, um, you know, that we've got those those vets that do go on to specialise as well, you know, as I said, that saved my cat's life, um, you know, through the specialist centre that it's just knowing all of that and it's not like, you know, in the human medical field, we're just learning the human body. Yes, we have males and females and children and adults, but, you know, look at everything you have to know as a vet. How many species of animals are there? And then, you know, your wildlife and your reptiles. But it's just, yeah. it's mind-blowing, know it you know, and yeah. for, for pretty low wages at the end yes, of the day. Very low. Which is really astounding. Um, Wow. Yeah. There's just so much there and so much that I'm just sitting here and nodding my head. And I I love that you're bringing such a loud and courageous voice to this profession. And it's just so needed because, you know, I've, I've been saying all these things over the years to, you know, nearest and dearest or colleagues, but you never hear anyone in the general public or, you know, not many mm. pet parents actually understand what really goes on and, and what is yes. required and and the pressures and the stresses. And, and I just am so grateful that we've got, you know, people like you who are, who are just doing amazing, life-changing work. So thank no, you thank from you. everyone. No, thank you. <laughs> yeah, but, and it's getting it out there. It's just awareness, um, yeah. you know, and us having these kind of platforms to spread the message, which can make a massive difference as well. And I think it also encourages, you know, for those in the profession that there are people out there, there are organisations out there that are doing what we can to support them. Um, You know, through like these podcasts, that sends a message, you know, we're talking about it, we're having this conversation, helping to reduce the stigma, you know, and raising that awareness. And that's the kind of stuff that starts to make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. And you are making a difference. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And we have have the pleasure of your company again next month's podcast where we're going to look into some more practical tips that the vets and vet nurses who are listening can use day-to-day to support their own mental well-being, which I'm super excited to go into. And hopefully um, those who are listening who maybe can't access 
someone like yourself so easily can gain a little bit of knowledge that can just help them that little bit, um, to, you know, get through their work day and, and start to enjoy their job more because at the end of the day, that's, yes. you know, that's what we want for everyone. Um, but before we go today, are there, are there, um, I just wanted to, to tease our listeners a little bit to, to sort of <laughs> join us next, next month's episode. What are three really simple tips that you have for uh, veterinary professionals that they can do, you know, each day to improve their day and their mental health? Mm-hmm. Um, I think one is, is being mindful mm-hmm. about what's going on and noticing if something's not right, you know, because we're our own best health detective, um, to use the words of one of my colleagues, but I love it. Yeah, um, you know, right. we know when something's not right. You know, if we're feeling lousy or we're feeling really, really good, we know what's going on, you know. So honouring ourselves, I guess, and looking at that self-care to be able to say, you know what, I need to do something about this. Mm. Um, you know, I need to reach out and talk to someone, you know, or really um, embrace that that self care, whatever that yeah. may look like, as, as long as it's safe, healthy, and legal. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So that mindfulness, I think, even looking at you know gratitude, and I know it sounds like a fluffy word, but gratitude can be so important because it's very easy. You know, when we're getting caught up in the not so good things, we're very much aware of, oh, I hate this, I don't like that, oh, I wish I didn't have to do this. But it's like, but look at the things that you do have and the things that you can do um, and can provide, you know, the fact that, you know, the vets and the nurses have these incredible skills, you know, this incredible knowledge, they can save animals' lives, they can um, help the quality of the animals' lives, you know, there's so much that they can do Um, and not just from the, the clinical work but you know, looking at like our biosecurity and agriculture and research, Mm -hmm. there is so much there. So, you know, being grateful that even though they might not work in the nicest place, that they still have the skills and the knowledge to be employed, Um, you know, and those sorts of, you know, and making a difference. Um, And I think, yeah, like focusing on very much a a positive psychology person, um, you know, focusing on, what's going right, you know, the positive yeah. things that you do have, which is a little bit like the gratitude yeah. rather than getting caught up in the not so good in things. The um, because yeah. The, yeah, the, the good things deserve just as much attention yeah. as the not so good things. And imagine how good it feels if you put that energy into noticing the good things and acting on the good things that you do for the not so good things. Yeah, um, have a ripple so, effect, yeah. I'm sure. Absolutely. You know, I, I think the self-care is huge and, and having boundaries, you know, yes. setting boundaries is another really big, um, so big one, you know, and yeah. yeah, definitely reaching out and talking to someone you trust or, you know, whether it's your doctor, a counsellor, a psychologist, a friend, someone that you trust, you know, if you're not feeling right, speak out and do something positive um, and proactive rather than sort of just hoping it'll all go away, which it may not. So, you know, the self-care. Yeah, I love that. Oh, it would be thank my number you. one. They're really, really, yeah. really nice tips and um, a really nice segue into our, our next episode that we're going to be recording together, which I'm really excited about. And um, before yes. we close up today, Nadine, are you able to just share your contact details or any sort of information about how people can find you and love your pet, love your vet? And then we'll pop it in the show notes as well. 
thank you. Absolutely. Um, so we have our website, which is www.loveyourpetloveyourvet.com.au. Um, and there's a lot of different resources. You can see our last campaign is on there um, as well, just different things and merchandise and all those sorts of things. And um, contact as well, so you can get in touch with us through yeah. the website. Um, Facebook and Instagram, we're on both of those as well, just under Love Your Pet, Love Your Vet. Um, you know, so we appreciate all the support and everything as well. Um, for any of the vets or vet nurses, anyone working in that profession, we do have a private support group on Facebook as well, okay. just for those working in the profession, that they're welcome to join into that. Um and then, obviously, my, my private practice side is the Positive Psych Solutions, which is same on the website and Facebook and Instagram as well. But, okay, um, yes, yeah, particularly for Love Your Pet, um, the website and Facebook and Instagram. Great. Well, I'll put all that information in the show notes so people Thank can, you. can finish listening and then jump straight onto both your websites and, and hopefully know find out more about you and how they can either help vets or if they're vets themselves how they can help themselves and their colleagues absolutely wonderful thank you so much Nadine and I'm really excited to talk to you again next month uh, where we're talking about um, like I mentioned some more practical ways that um, people who are working in the industry can um, you know implement into their days to sort of just help them and and help them love their work again no, thank you. Thank you so much for helping us get this really important topic out oh, there. Oh, that's wonderful. Supporting <laughs> thank it. you yeah, for getting it lovely. out there. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> All right, Nadine. Talk to you soon. Thanks very much. This was the Pure Animal Podcast and I'm Dr. Sarah Howard. If you enjoyed today's episode, please jump onto iTunes and give us a rating and a review.